This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. It's good to have you all this afternoon. Uh, We are going to continue and finish this afternoon with uh, the subject that we've been studying uh, in our five previous sessions. And as I promised, we're talking now about the implications of what we discussed the first four sessions. Um, We've been discussing um, the issue of worship in the last days. And uh, today we want to take a look at um, something that is trying to enter the Adventist church, um, a spiritual practice, so-called, which um, has proliferated in many circles of the church and which uh, can be very, very dangerous. And uh, so at this time, we want to have a word of prayer, and uh, we'll uh, begin our study. All of my notes are on uh, the screen so that you'll be able to follow along easily. Um, as we go along, you know, if you have any question for clarification, let me know. If not, we'll leave a little bit of time at the end uh, for questions to clarify. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful message that we heard this morning. We thank you because we have a general conference president who is committed to the Lord, committed to your word, committed to prayer, committed to Bible study, committed to uh, sharing the message that you have given to this church to the world. Thank you, Father, because you're leading your church. But We know that your church faces grave dangers right now, as it has in all of its stages. And we just ask that as we study this subject this afternoon, that your Holy Spirit will be with us to guide our minds and that uh, we might escape from uh, the many deceptions that Satan has planned for these last days. We ask, Lord, uh, that you will continue to be with uh, GYC, be with all of the uh, events that still remain, uh, and that as our young people return to their home churches and to wherever they go, that uh, they might take the enthusiasm and the spirit of GYC there. We thank you, Father, for being with us and for answering our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've titled the presentation this afternoon, The Fine Art of Christian Meditation. And as we begin, I'd like to say that there are two dangerous extremes that we need to keep away from. One is the idea of the absolute immanence of God. The word immanence means God in creation, the idea that God is everywhere. That's the, abs- the idea of the absolute immanence of God. Uh, the other error is to believe in the absolute transcendence of God. That is that God is only up there. Now, if you believe in the absolute immanence of God, and only the immanence of God, that uh, heresy is called pantheism. The idea that God is in everything. And then it has a cousin called panentheism, which means that God is in everything. There's not a big distinction between God being everything and God being in everything. The other heresy, if you believe that God is only up there, is called deism. That's the idea that God 
uh, up in heaven, you know, set things to work down here like a clock. He wound up the clock and uh, he allowed things to function on their own down here. And he has no contact uh, with this world. He's up there, you know, he put the world in order and he put it to function and then he basically stays up there. William Miller was once a deist before he became an Advent believer. And so these are the two extremes that we need to keep away from. Deism, the absolute transcendence of God, and pantheism, the absolute immanence of God. Isaiah 57 verse 15 has the perfect balance between the transcendence of God and the immanence of God. You see, God is personally up there, but he is present here and he also is concerned about the things related to this earth. In Isaiah 57 and verse 15, we find that perfect balance. Uh, the prophet Isaiah said this, For thus says the high and lofty one, who inhabits where? Eternity, whose name is Holy. And then notice where he tells us that he dwells. I dwell in the high and holy place. So where does God dwell? In the high and holy place. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father which art everywhere. No. <laughs> Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father which art in heaven. God is personally in heaven. But now notice the balance. It says, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So did you notice the balance in this verse? He dwells in the high and holy place, but he also dwells how? With him, that is through his spirit, he dwells with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. Now, this afternoon I want to discuss, yes? To make it a little bit larger. Well, let me see if I... Uh, the right down here? The plus sign. Okay, let's see. How about that? As, as my marketing director says, how about that, boys and girls? Let's see where... Uh, now I need to go down a ways. Oh, is it up that I have to go? Okay, well, I have to go way up. Are you, uh, no, actually, I've got to go down. There we are. See, I told you I had to go down. <laughs> All right. Now, this afternoon, I want to talk especially about the danger of pantheism or panentheism. And I'm going to follow my notes quite carefully because uh, I've prepared them in the way that I, that I would like to present the material. For those who embrace New Age philosophy, consciousness, and what do we mean by consciousness? We mean the fact that you are aware of yourself and your surroundings and that you are aware that you are aware. That's consciousness. So according to New Age philosophy, consciousness and personality 
get in the way of being at oneness with the impersonal, impersonal universal consciousness. In order to shut out consciousness and return to the impersonal universal essence, you must transcend space and time. Therefore, you cannot think about anything concrete in historical experience because this causes stress and brings back negative memories. Are you following me? Because all of the things that have happened to us here have happened in space and time. How many of you have had only delightful experiences? I doubt if there's anybody who's had only delightful experiences. See, our experiences are tied to space and time, to our personality and to consciousness. We're conscious. And so the idea of uh, New Age philosophy and pantheism is to escape space and time, that is to transcend space and time. Therefore you cannot think about anything concrete in historical experience because this causes stress and brings back negative memories. You see, memories are based on events that took place in space and time. And therefore the mind must transcend space and time. Now in order to this, do this, you must empty your mind of all memories, of events, past, present, or even future. This will help your mind to go into neutral and experience absolute rest and silence. Then, according to this idea, you can hear the voice of God without any distractions. Now, during the 1960s, transcendental meditation frequently was accompanied by the use of drugs, such as marijuana and LSD, to lead the user into a trance or altered states of consciousness. The guru that the Beatles recurred to in this decade was Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was one of the pioneers who brought Eastern meditation to the West. Timothy Leary was another who encouraged the use of hallucinogens to cause altered states of consciousness. The idea is to get beyond your conscious mind into, into contact with the universal impersonal, unconscious essence of the universe. Now there is a contemporary Christian equivalent. The devil has a counterfeit for everything that God has true and vice versa. And there is a Christian uh, version of what I just described as New Age philosophy. And it bears different names. It is called sometimes contemplative prayer. Others call it centering prayer. And still others refer to it as listening prayer. Basically the idea is when you experience what they call the silence, all thinking is suspended and you come into direct contact with God. That's the Christian version of uh, pantheistic thinking. Now I want you to notice uh, how it is expressed by several individuals who are into this. The, the, intellectual, uh, uh, the intele intellectual individuals who spearhead this idea in, Christian, in Christendom. Willis Jaeger, a Roman Catholic Benedictine monk uh, 
stated it this way. Do not reflect on the meaning of the word. Thinking and reflecting must cease. As all, and now notice this word is a very important word, as all mystical writers insist. Simply sound the word silently. He's talking about a mantra here, and we'll come back to that. Simply sound the word silently, letting go of all feelings and thoughts. In other words, the idea is that when you are in a spirit of prayer, you stop thinking. You empty your mind of all thought. Your mind, in other words, becomes blank. William Johnston, who was a Jesuit priest and at the same time a Zen Buddhist, had this to say. When one enters the deeper layers of contemplative prayer, one sooner or later experiences the void called in Eastern philosophy nirvana. It's just a sophisticated Christian word that substitutes. Experiences the void, the what? The emptiness, the nothingness. And in Buddhism, you know, nirvana simply means to that personality is extinguished. Consciousness is extinguished. You become part of the universal God, the universal essence, in other words. So he says, um, one who enters the deeper layers of contemplative prayer, one sooner or later experiences the void, the emptiness, the nothingness, the profound mystical. Notice the, once again the word mystical. We're going to come back to that. Ellen White uses that word. The profound mystical silence, an absence of thought. So what is the idea of contemplative prayer according to the founders and those who have proliferated the idea? Absence of thought. Avoid. Absolute silence. Ceasing your thinking. Now Brennan Manning, a former Roman Catholic mystic, suggests this to those who want to practice contemplative prayer. Stop thinking. Repeat the word slowly. It's talking about the mantra. Repeat the word slowly and often and enter the great silence of God. And now notice, and the voice of love will be heard. You know, there's a characteristic of spiritualism and pantheism that comes through time and again, and that is the idea of love. Spiritualism constantly talks about love. But it's not love as the Bible defines it. The Bible defines of love. This is love that you keep His commandments. Isn't that what the Bible defines? But the, the definition of spiritism and pantheism and new age is not obedience to God's commandments. It is a internal, mystical experience that takes place in your heart it has nothing to do with anything objective outside of yourself now Richard Foster one of the main intellectuals of this new movement uh, of spiritual formation and contemplative prayer in the Christian world had this to say in your imagination allow your spiritual body shining with light 
to rise out of your physical body. Does that sound like spiritualism? Absolutely. So you have a physical body, but you have another you inside. Then he says, reassure your body that you will return. <laughs> Go deeper and deeper into outer space until there is nothing except the warm presence of the eternal creator. Rest in his presence. Listen quietly to any instruction given. Does that sound Christian? Do you realize that many of these books are being recommended in Adventist colleges? Absolutely. Now for the believers in New Age philosophy, teaching nirvana is the ideal. Where consciousness and thought has been extinguished and you have returned to nothingness. You have ceased to exist as a conscious time and space person. That's the ideal of Eastern meditation. In New Age philosophy, the goal of meditation is to make the brain totally passive. To empty it of all its content. Would it be too much to say that the goal of New Age philosophy is to become an airhead? <laughs> Pretty much sounds like it. Now, what happens if you're trying to enter this experience of nothingness in your mind, of emptying your mind, of experiencing the silence, of the void, uh, and having no thought whatsoever, that means that you're in perfect peace because there's no time or space interference from your previous experiences or even from, from what's happening now or what's going to happen in the future. What happens if your mind gets di distracted? Well, in order not to dis get distracted, you, you repeat a mantra. Now, the mantra basically is a word or a phrase that is repeated over and over again that causes a type of self-hypnotism. The word mantra comes from two words in Sanskrit. The first part of the word is man, which means to think. And the second part of the word tra, which means to be liberated from. So the word mantra means to be liberated from thought. In other words, what is the purpose of the repetition of this word over and over and over again? It's to hypnotize yourself in a way that your mind gets beyond space and time and con consciousness is extinguished so that you can experience the silence within yourself. You say, well, certainly Christians are not suggesting, these authors are not suggesting that you're supposed to repeat a mantra. Yes, they are. Only it's not a pagan word, like saying om, 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 om. You know, it's, 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 you could say Christ, 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 Christ. <laughs> It's just substituting a different Christian word in place of the pagan word, but the idea is still taking a word or a phrase and repeating it over and over again. You see, what once was a practice of Eastern mystics has entered the Christian mainstream, including Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, and even Adventism. It entered Protestantism through Catholicism. 
and Adventism through Roman Catholic and Protestant writers. It came into Roman Catholicism through Ignatius Loyola, who was the founder of the Society of Jesus, which is also known as the Jesuit Order. You know, he developed what is known as the spiritual exercises. Basically, Loyola was a spiritualist. When you read, when you read his writings, he was a spiritualist. And his idea was that everyone in the Jesuit order should submit his will totally and completely to that of his superior so that his own personal identity would be extinguished and somebody else would become his conscience. Does that sound like someone that uh, we would want to follow his ideas of spirituality? Do you know the purpose of the foundation of the Jesuits was to eradicate the Protestant Reformation. Loyola says so. In fact, if you go to St. Peter's Cathedral, you'll find a statue there of Loyola, and he's trampling upon a Protestant. Because that is the avowed purpose of the Jesuit order. And it's no coincidence now that we have a Jesuit Pope, whom everybody admires and loves. You know, Ellen White described the papacy better than any writer I have ever Read Ellen White in a short phrase describes, describes the characteristics of the papacy. She says, Behind the variable appearance of the chameleon is the invariable venom of the serpent. That's the best phrase that describes the papacy. She, the papacy is going through a facelift. But behind the facelift is the same old witch. And you might say, well, that's strong. It is strong. But Revelation chapter 17 calls this system the harlot. So we can't play with fire. Nothing that comes from there is good. And if it came to Protestantism from there, we need to be very, very careful about adopting anything that has that source. The thought leaders of spiritual formation are Richard Foster, who wrote the book Celebration of Discipline, used in many Adventist circles, by the way. It's been read by millions. Another is Thomas Keating, a Roman Catholic ecumenist, tremendously interested in uniting all of the churches in his writings, a renowned Roman Catholic scholar. You have Willis Jagger, a Roman Catholic Benedictine monk, and a master of Zen Buddhism. Roman Catholic priest Henry Nguyen, who taught at Notre Dame University as well as Harvard and Yale. William Johnston, who is a Jesuit priest and Zen Buddhist. Thomas Merton, Leonard Sweet, among others. You know, you need to keep these names in mind because you're going to encounter them in Adventist publications. Even Protestants have embraced it. Individuals like Max Lucado. Ever heard of him? Yes. Philip Yancey. And the singer Amy Grant. Rick Warren has recommended books by Christian mystics. Believe it or not. Now, those who are in favor of spiritual formation and contemplative prayer greatly misuse the Bible. They inject meanings into texts that were never intended by the writers. 
For example, they take Psalm 46, verse 10, where it says, Be still and know that I am God. And so they say, this means that you're supposed to empty your mind of thought and know that God, that the Lord is God. But if you look at most versions, you're going to find that really what the text is saying, God is saying to uh, those who battle against him, cease and desist from striving against me. That's the way most modern versions translate it. They also use, misuse Matthew 6 verse 6 where Jesus says that we're supposed to pray in the inner room. They say the inner room is where? Within your, your, your mind, your conscience, yes. But the previous verse makes it very clear that Jesus is contrasting public with private prayer. They say the closet, you know, is, is your inner self. And they also misuse 1 Kings 19 verse 12 where Elijah hears a still small voice. Yes, but the interesting thing is that Elijah is hearing a message with that voice. A space and time message. So he's not experiencing the silence so called. Now this, you notice that the word mystic, mysticism was used a couple of times. What is mysticism? And then I'm going to read you a statement from Ellen White. Mysticism, the dictionary definition of mysticism is of pertaining to or stemming from direct communication with ultimate reality or God. The mystic does not believe he gets his guidance from any objective source such as the Bible. They believe they get it directly by subjectively listening to the voice of God. In other words, no such thing as an external source. You know, you read the Bible and then you pray and the Lord reveals through Scripture what His will is for your life. No, 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 that won't work for the mystic. The mystic believes that, you know, he enters this contemplative state and then God speaks directly to his brain and to his mind. In the book Evangelism, page 606, Ellen White showed that she was very much aware of mysticism. She uses the word. She says, there are many who shrink with horror from the thought of consulting spirit mediums. Do you think that uh, this, these places, people are necessarily having seances? No. I don't know of any Adventist university or any Adventist place where they're taking these books and they're, they're appealing to us having a seance or trying to communicate with departed spirits. But the devil, is, the devil is too intelligent for that. The devil knows that Adventists know that Ellen White says that the devil is going to appear along with his angels as departed relatives. So the devil says, I have to enter under the radar through a more sophisticated method. And so Ellen White says, there are many who shrink with horror from the thought of consulting spirit mediums, but who are attracted by more pleasing forms of spiritism, such as the Emmanuel movement. Still others are led astray by the teachings of Christian science. And by what? By the mysticism of theosophy and other what? Oriental religions. Was Ellen White aware of Oriental religions? What did she call them? Mysticism. Now, I'm sure that you're aware 
that around the year 1903, the devil tried to introduce this mysticism into the Adventist church through a medical doctor who had tremendous influence. His name was John Harvey Kellogg. Actually, he was the uh, creator of um, the cornflakes, Kellogg's cornflakes. I don't think that he would like the cornflakes that people eat today or any of the other cereals that are produced by Kellogg's because his idea is that the cereals, the morning cereals, needed to be healthy. Uh, but anyway, uh, John Harvey Kellogg uh, began teaching that uh, God was in everything. And he tried to introduce this into the Adventist church. It's a long story, and it's a sad story, but it's fascinating. It teaches us many lessons about what is happening now in the Adventist church. And Ellen White stated that that was the alpha of deadly heresies. The alpha of apostasy. And she says that the Omega would follow. And that she trembled for our people. I believe that the devil is trying to enter the church once again in the same way that he did back then. But through a different, more sophisticated method. And by the way, back then it was the intellectuals that were into this. It was not the rank and file in the church. It was educators and it was physicians and, and, and leaders, administrators of the church that were involved in this. And by the way, Ellen White set her foot down and uh, she, you know, she had this dream where this ship was sailing, uh, where there were icebergs and an iceberg was straight ahead. And uh, in the dream she heard, meet it. And the ship crashed against that uh, iceberg and uh, the iceberg broke into smithereens and the ship suffered damage but it made it to port. The ship represents the Adventist church. You know, she didn't, the, the, the one who spoke in her dream did not suggest to try and evade it because the Titanic did that. And the Titanic is at the bottom of the North Atlantic. Meet it, she said. And the church met it. And the church lost Many, many intellectuals. It lost many of the teachers. It lost many physicians. It lost nurses. It lost administrators. It lost pastors. But in the aftermath, the church was in better shape as a result of that. Now, Satan tried to introduce a crude kind of pantheism at the turn of the 20th century. He attempted to import the pantheism of Hinduism into the church. By the help of Ellen White, his attacks were defeated. Now he seeks to enter under the radar with what appears to be much more beautiful and meaningful. Who doesn't want to be close to God? Which brings you closer to God. But it is the same heresy garbed in nicer clothing. Now notice what Ellen White called this heresy. This is the interesting part. Do you remember that yesterday, uh, I was, when I was discussing this, I read a statement from Ellen White where she says that the devil in heaven, what was the point of attack of the devil in heaven? What is it that the devil hated most? God's holy law. He said, the law restricts your liberty. It restricts your freedom. It takes away your freedom, is the expression that she uses. In other words, the devil wanted love without law. Because he said, your heart will always lead you to 
what is right. Your heart will always lead you to do the loving thing without the law having to tell you to do it or not do it. We studied that yesterday. Now notice how Ellen White called the pantheistic ideas of Kellogg. I have seen the results of these fanciful views of God. In apostasy, what's the next word? So pantheism is spiritualism, folks. Spiritualism and what? Free loveism. My question is free of what? Free of the law. Are you hearing today that, you know, when something wrong is done, something terribly wrong is done in the church, like, for example, uh, uh, some minister teaches that it's okay for a man to marry a man and a woman to marry a woman, you know, there are always members in the church that rise when the person is, is, is dismissed from their job. They say, well, is that the loving thing to do? That's not loving. What kind of love is that? It's what Ellen White calls weak sentimentalism. The devil has created a conflict between love and law. Jesus sees no conflict. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the opposite is true. If you don't love me, you will not keep my commandments. And that includes the commandment that says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Which includes all sexual deviations from God's plan. Now, does it mean we hate these people? No. We're to love them. Yeah. If they want to come to church, you're not going to expel them from church, are you? No. I would welcome them in my church. I say, really? Yeah. Because you want them to be saved. You don't welcome the behavior, but you do welcome the person. After all, Jesus hung out with publicans and sinners. But that does not mean that he was a publican and sinner. He went there because he wanted to reach them. So, so we have to relate to these people and show them that we love them. But at the same time, make it clear that the behavior is not acceptable in the sight of God. She continues saying, the free love what? Tendency. Of these teachings was so concealed that at first it was difficult to make plain its real character. See, it's deceptive, folks. Until the Lord presented it to me, I knew not what to call it, but I was instructed to call it unholy spiritual love. What makes it unholy? Because it is love without what? Without law. And the law is spiritual. And the law is holy. So the idea is love without the law defining what true love is. That's volume 8 of the testimonies, page 292. In Selected Messages, volume 1, page 197, Ellen White says, Be not deceived. Many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, doctrines of devils. We have now before us the alpha of this danger. The omega will be of the most startling nature. I believe that we're seeing that today. She says on page 200 of the same book, in the book Living Temple, there is presented the alpha of deadly heresies. The omega will follow and will be received by those who are not willing to heed the warning God has given. 
And this next statement, Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 202, is really, really interesting. It, it's loaded with meaning. She says, we need not the what? She's talking about the book Living Temple that was written by Kellogg. We need not the mysticism that is in this book. Incidentally, do you know that uh, Kellogg wanted his book published by the Review and Herald Publishing Association? And when, when the plates were almost ready for it to be printed, the publishing house burnt down? So you know what Kellogg did? He had a backup. You know, he, uh, he got it done through a different publisher. Why would the Review and Herald want to publish a book that Ellen White had been critical of? Our very own publishing house. She says, we need not the mysticism that is in this book. Those who entertain these sophistries. What is a sophistry? It's something that deceives, something that appears to be good, but deep down it's evil. She says, those who entertain these sophistries will soon find themselves in a position, now listen carefully, in a position where the enemy can talk with them. Wow. What happens when you empty your mind? Well, the idea is, if you empty your mind of all thought, then God can talk to you. But there's another side to the equation. And that is, if you empty your mind, the devil can talk to you. What is the standard that you need to make sure whether it's God or the devil that is talking to you? God's objective word. Outside of you. Yes, brother. Yes. We, we will come back to that. There, you see, uh, the track of truth and error lie very close together. We are supposed to be calm and in silence when we pray, but our mind must be engaged. That's the difference. I'm going to give you some practical suggestions of how to practice true meditation before we bring this to an end. But thank you for, for that clarification. That's very important, brother. Uh, so she continues saying, uh, those who entertain these sophistries will soon find themselves in a position where the enemy can talk with them and lead them away from God. It is represented to me that the writer of this book is on a false track. He has lost sight. Now lo notice what he's lost because of his ideas. He has lost sight of the distinguishing truths for this time. Where are those distinguishing truths to be found? In the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Let me ask you, if everyone is God, if everything is God, everyone is God, so why would you need to be sanctified? Ultimately, who would be responsible for sin? God. Because if you are part of God, or if you are God, and He is God, and the other guy is God, what makes you think that your ethics are better than His or mine? Are you with me? She continues saying, he has lost sight of the distinguishing truths for this time. He knows not whither his steps are tending. 
And now notice, the track of truth lies close beside the track of error. And both tracks may seem to be one to minds which are not worked by the Holy Spirit and which, therefore, are not quick to discern the difference between what? Between truth and error. What is it that helps us distinguish between truth and error? God's Word. You remember what we studied yesterday the Garden of Eden? The first spiritualist and pantheistic argument in history with regards to this world was in the Garden of Eden. The devil tells Eve, hey, hey, listen, eh, you didn't know snakes could talk, right? And then he, he misquotes God's word and he just leads Eve to exaggerate God's word. And then he, he plays games with her reasoning powers. Let me tell you the reason why God told you not to eat from the tree. It's not because you're going to die, but because God doesn't want any rivals. Only he wants to be God. He knows if you eat from this tree, you're going to be just like him. And then he's going to have competition. And he says, Steve, the tree, the, the fruit looks good, right? It looks tasty, doesn't it? And you've touched it and you haven't died, right? Later to, sell, to, to follow the testimony of her senses. In other words, the devil is trying to lead her to follow the te every testimony except what God has said. What Eve should have said is, God told us not to eat. And we live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's that simple. Now, notice the next statement. This day with God, and I read this one yesterday, page 21. Satan is making the world believe that the Bible is a mere fiction. Why would the devil want people to believe that the Bible is a mere fiction? Do you know we have some of our own scholars in our midst that are doubting whether Genesis 1 through 11 is really literal? Yep. They're doubting whether the story of creation is literal. You know, that's why Jesus says we have to become like little children. Let me ask you, those of you who, are, who have been Sabbath school teachers in the lower divisions, let's say in the inner kindergarten division, when you tell the story of how God created light and then he created the firmament and he created the trees and he created, you know, the, the sun, moon and stars and he created the animals, the birds and the fish, you know, after you tell the story, a, a child in kindergarten says, now is that scientifically possible? the child embraces it he says this is wonderful Jesus says we are to become like children in fact Ellen White says that those who doubt creation and those who believe that the world has existed for billions of years and that everything came into existence by a process of evolution she says they have lost the simplicity of faith that's her expression. They've lost the simplicity of faith. See, faith is simple. You can settle it in your mind that no matter what problems there are, and by the way, there are problems for creationists. Let's admit it. There are issues that we can't re uh, resolve, and I don't think some of them will be able to resolve in this world. But I settled it in my mind that irrespective of the problems that there are with creationism, and there are more problems for evolution, by the way, I've settled in my mind that someday God is going to explain those and I've decided to have the simplicity of faith and trust in what God says. 
it's wonderful to live that way because the buck stops with him. Why would the devil want to do this? Why would he want to, people to believe that the Bible is fiction? Notice, Satan is making the world believe that the Bible is a mere fiction or at least a book suited to the infancy of the race. But now to be lightly regarded or cast aside as obsolete. The devil wants to get rid of the Bible as an objective standard because he wants to substitute something in its place. He wants you to be the standard. And so she says, and to take the place of the Word of God, he holds out what? Spiritual manifestations. In other words, your personal, spiritual, inside experience in place of the objective Word of God. She says, here is a channel wholly under his control. By this means he can make the world believe what he will. The book that is to judge him and his followers he puts in the shade. Just where he wants it. The savior of the world he makes to be no more than a common man. You see Satan's central strategy is to get men to follow a subjective standard of right and wrong. Rather than the objective eternal standard of God's word. All of these philosophies, whether it be existentialism, spiritualism, pantheism, contemplative prayer, the emerging church, postmodern thinking, values, clarification, neo-orthodoxy, situation ethics, new age, psychoanalysis, you name it, are all based on a subjective internal standard of truth. Satan wants to get people to follow their heart instead of following the Bible. Ellen White says that the scriptures are our only safeguard. And I brought this to view yesterday. Will people accept the counterfeit second coming because they have chosen to follow the testimony of their ears, their eyes, their feelings and impressions? If you've taught yourself to follow what your heart tells you, and what your ears tell you, and what your eyes tell you, and what other people tell you, when, when the devil counterfeits the second coming of Christ, you are not going to be faithful. It's that simple. What is our only protection when the devil counter... You know his counter... Ellen White says, listen carefully, Ellen White says that the counterfeit is going to be perfect. He's going to look like Jesus. Glorious. Like Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 1. He's going to speak like Jesus. Do you think the devil knows what Jesus' voice is like? Of course he does. Does he know what Jesus taught? Ellen White says he's going to teach some of the beautiful things that Jesus taught in a melodious tone of voice. Wow. And he's going to perform miracles before the sight of people. How are you going to know that this is not Christ? Your eyes tell you it's Christ. Your ears tell you it's Christ. Everybody around you is going out to see him. They believe that it's Christ. The whole world has been converted. Uh, it, uh, by this so-called Christ? How do you know? You know for two reasons. Number one, because the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes, He will not touch the earth. Is it important to know how Jesus will come? You better believe it's important to know how Jesus will come. It's not important to only to know that He's coming, but how He's coming. He's coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him. 
See? And the second reason why people will know that it's not Christ, the remnant will know that it's not Christ, is because the devil is going to tell people in a melodious voice, oh, and by the way, the reason why you have all these calamities in the world is because people don't honor me on my holy day, my resurrection, on Sunday. Immediately the remnant will say, not Christ, false Christ. Because the Bible says the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Only with the Bible will God's people be able to stand firm. Yes. Yes, the Bible says don't even, don't even think about going out. If it comes on CNN, turn it off. <laughs> that applies to the Fox News Channel and MSNBC too. Now, let's continue. In Christian meditation, the mind is actively involved. Because we're going to talk now about what real meditation is. It is based on reflection, musing, remembering, thinking, and reasoning. It is extremely dangerous to put the mind in neutral. Because Satan then finds an empty house that he can possess. The mind that is filled with the Word of God cannot be taken over by Satan. This is illustrated by a parable that Jesus told, which is found in Luke 11, 24 to 26. And now I'll read that parable. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through the dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. True Christian meditation does not consist of vain repetition and emptying the mind, but rather filling it with the promises and memories of God as they are found in the written scriptures. In Christian meditation, the brain is active and engaged and reminiscing about the past and anticipating the future. Now, is it true that sometimes uh, things get in the way when we're trying to meditate and reflect upon God? Sure. The hustle and bustle of life has stolen the fine art of Christian meditation from modern man. And that's why people are looking for spirituality. We need time to be silent. This is coming to the point now that our brother brought up. We need time to be silent in order that we might hear the voice of God speaking through the scriptures. Would you agree with that? We need some downtime. And notice how Ellen White describes it in the Adventist Home, page 521. She says, in this age of the world, there is an unprecedented rage for pleasure, dissipation, and reckless extravagance everywhere, everywhere prevail. The multitudes are eager for amusement. The mind becomes trifling and frivolous because it is not accustomed to meditation or what? or disciplined study. Ignorant sentimentalism is current. I like that expression, ignorant sentimentalism. It means that you allow your heart to dictate everything and not your brain. Ellen White also says that people want a religion that does not appeal to the unimpassioned reason. And do you know what that means? That a religion that does not appeal to the unimpassioned reason? You know, she uses that expression in another context when she's speaking about two young people that are courting. 
She says that, that when you're courting, you should allow love to go through your brain to your heart. She says that you th should think with unimpassioned reason about the other person. Unimpassioned means that without the interference of your feelings. But the religious world today, all they want a religion is that's feeling, 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 feeling. And there is feeling religion, but religion is not feeling. Yes. Yep. Oh, all of Hollywood. Have you noticed how Hollywood had just come to the point where it totally majors in the occult? And, and experience and nothing objective. It's just amazing what the devil has done. She continues saying, ignorant sentimentalism is current. God requires that every soul shall be cultivated, refined, elevated, and ennobled. But too often, every valuable attainment is neglected for fashionable display and superficial what? Superficial pleasure. Now, let me give you some positive tips about successful biblical meditation. Because it's, it's not only good to denounce the counterfeit, but we need to, to practice the true. First, the best time is in the morning, before the hustle and bustle of the day stresses us out to the point that we cannot simmer down. You say, well, I can simmer down in the evening. Uh, if you simmer down in the evening, it's okay. I find that I'm very high strung at the end of the day, after a day of activities. But in the morning, you know, if I get up before anybody else gets up, my best study time. You know, some of my best ideas come up when I'm riding my bicycle in the morning. I ride my bike five miles every morning. Religiously when I'm home. I'm not home all the time, but when I'm home, I ride my bike. <laughs> and when I'm not home, I walk through, through airports. I don't take shuttles unless, uh, you know, my flight is, is on top of, of the schedule and I have to get there. Uh, but you know, some of my best thinking comes when I'm by myself riding my bicycle. Because I don't have any distractions. And I'm not really, at that time, I, I'm, you know, thinking about the Bible, I'm thinking about the Lord, I'm reflecting upon His goodness, and He brings all kinds of great ideas to my mind. Secondly, choose a quiet, comfortable, peaceful place where there are no distractions. The Bible says that Jesus, long before the sun came up, he went to a soli solitary place and prayed. Much of my personal, I put this here, much of my personal meditation takes place while I'm riding my bike in the morning. That's true. Sometimes soft background music can be used. Don't use New Age music. It is tuneless. New Age music has no tune. It has no melody. It's just... The purpose is to put your mind in neutral. Another thing, choose a passage of scripture to meditate upon and focus your thoughts upon it. So you're not going to empty your mind, you're going to fill it with God's word. Pray that the Holy Spirit will help your mind to dwell upon what really happened in that passage. Read the passage several times. Thinking about what you are reading. If possible, commit the passage to memory. Notice this. This is a fantastic statement from Ellen White. Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1085. She says, 
You need to dwell. What does it mean to dwell? Ah, you got to stay there. You need to dwell upon the assurances of God's word. To hold them before the mind's eye, point by point, day by day, repeat the lessons they're given. Is that putting your mind in neutral? No, 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 no. It's actively engaged. It's taking a passage. It's repeating it. So she says, over and over until you learn the bearing and import of them. We see a little today, and by meditation and prayer, more tomorrow. And thus, little by little, we take in the gracious promises until we can almost comprehend their full significance. Isn't that wise counsel? It's absolutely beautiful counsel. If you want, you can close your eyes and recreate the scene. Now, don't invent things that are not in the scene. Don't be that creative. In other words, read the passage and try to, try to put yourself in the situation according to what is in the passage. Your mind is still actively engaged. Ellen White says in, uh, in uh, the book, um, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, the first couple of pages, he talks about why Jesus spoke in parables. She says that we're supposed to place ourselves where Jesus was and, and in the story itself. There's nothing wrong with that because your mind is engaged. Just don't invent, don't use such a vivid imagination that you're adding things that were not put there in the text. Use your imagination, but don't speculate or go beyond the Word of God. What happens if your mind wanders? Have, do you get frustrated sometimes when your mind wanders? You say, oh, I've got to go to the bank today. Oh, the kids are going to be up in a few minutes. Ah, I gotta get do breakfast. You know, you're always there's there there is this danger of always being distracted. So what do you do? You get all frustrated and you give up. No, no, no. What you need to do is just come back again to your train of thought until your mind has developed the art of concentration. Just come back to it. And if you get distracted, come back and pray to the Lord. Lord, help me to concentrate on this, and the Lord will. And then, equally important. Put into practice what you have meditated upon. Because practice makes perfect. Or else it's just going to be something in your brain. And you know what, folks? The more time that we spend with Jesus, the more we will be like Him. Amen. You know, there's this statement of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. He says that beholding as, a mirror, as in a mirror the glory of the Lord we are changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Ellen White says that means from character to character. The more time we spend with him, the more we will reflect his character. Re thinking upon him with our mind actively engaged in him, a transformation will take place in our heart, in our life. Uh, let's take some questions now. Yes, brother? That's correct. That's right. It, you know, Ellen White, that's why Ellen White says that we should spend at least one hour a day to contemplate the life of Christ, particularly the closing scenes. 
Do you know why we have so much trouble overcoming sin? Because what we're watching is confirming our sin. And what we're listening to is strengthening our sin. Because what you listen to and what you watch either makes your sin strong or makes Jesus strong. You will have circumstances where you're surrounded by it. Jesus was surrounded by it in many places. But what, he did, what did he do? He spent that time with his father in the morning. Sometimes he spent all night with his father. And therefore, Ellen White says that he was prepared the next day when he came into circumstances such as that. If you prepare and you spend time with Jesus, you know, quality time, then when those moments come, you'll be strong enough to face them. Uh, you know, let, let me just mention this one other thing. Um, how, what is the best way to overcome sin? The best way to overcome sin, folks, is not by looking at the law, but by looking at Jesus. Because when you, when you take that hour a day to contemplate the closing scenes of the life of Christ, you know, you, you follow him, for example, you follow him to Gethsemane. And you hear him crying out to his father, Father, this cup of your wrath can pass from me. Because he was going to drink the, the cup of wrath that should fall on all of us. If this cup should, can, can pass from me, let it be so. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And, and, you know, we're reading about him sweating drops of blood. And we follow him to the cross and he's crying out, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we're going through those scenes that we're seeing, you know, that this perfect man, went through this grueling experience, we asked Jesus, say, why did this happen to you? Jesus says, because of your sin. Will we look at sin differently at that point? We'll see sin differently because of what it did to Jesus. See, when we see what sin did to Jesus, and we come to love Jesus, and we come to hate sin, it's because we take our eyes off of Jesus and we're watching too much television and listening to world music and bringing movies to the house and playing video games and doing things that are not bad in themselves most of the time, like texting and doing all these things. You know, those are things that are not bad in themselves, but they can become such a habit that they distract, it, distract us from what can produce a positive Christian experience. Even good things can be negative if we allow them to take over our life. Yes, brother? Well, you're supposed to speak up. Amen. You know, one of the problems we have in the church is that the, there's a lot of people that feel that what's, ha what's happening needs to be remedied. But they think, they say, well, you know, the problem is if I speak up, it's going to cause discord. It's going to cause division, and we want there to be peace. But folks, it's an artificial peace. Because eventually there will be no peace. So what do we need to do? We need to speak up. We need to go to the right sources. We need to speak to them if we're concerned about these things and, uh, and let them know what our way of thinking is and be well documented. We need to study and be well documented on these things. You know, the devil has, has been an expert in dumbing down America. Yeah, through video games and movies and television and everything. People, people don't think anymore. We got to learn to be critical thinkers. And for that we have to read and we have to study the way God's people used to do.
You know, we can't just uh, be satisfied with the superficial stuff. We have to go in depth into God's word. Yes. Yeah, you, you know what? I'll, I'll share a secret with you. Um, I will very seldom read any book these days other than the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy. Amen. I dedicate so much time. And I'm not saying it's wrong to read other books. Don't get me wrong, because uh, some people are critical. That, oh, so you only think we need to read the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy. Well, those are the only inspired sources that I know of. The others might be, the others might be inspiring, but not inspired. So I, we go with the inspired sources first. Um, you know, there are very few books out there that, that really uh, challenge me. Let me put it that way. That's ho the, the spirit of prophecy is always challenging me. You know, every page of the spirit of prophecy challenges my thought processes. And ideas are instilled, wow, you know, I didn't know that. And, you know, I've got to pursue that. I've got to study it more. It's just an exhaustless source of truth, the spirit of prophecy. It's a treasure that God has given to the Adventist church. And we need to emphasize it. You know, we need to go back to our churches and we need to, to shake the dust off of the, off the red books. I know they're not books anymore. They're in the computer now. But, but we need to bring them back to our people so that our people can be blessed. Yes. I haven't heard that they're editing the books and taking things out of the original version. I doubt it very much whether they're doing that. Uh, you know, we have... There are condensed versions of uh, Ellen White books. Uh, one of them is Messiah. Have you seen the book Messiah, which is a, a contemporary rendering of the book Desire of Ages? Uh, but, you know, it's made very clear in the introduction that this is, uh, that this is not an original. It's, it's adapted. And there are also edited versions of Great Controversy. There are abbreviated versions of Great Controversy as well. And Ellen White, by the way, approved the publication of edited versions of Great Controversy. So, so you know, uh, uh, the White Estate is doing a fabulous job. Uh, every time I call, they have answers uh, to the questions that I ask. They're publishing as much as they can. Uh, you know, the White Estate is doing a phenomenal job. And uh, we have a great leadership on a general conference level. We need to pray for them. There are huge challenges these days. We need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our pastors. When we see things that are not supposed to be done, we need to speak up and talk to them. Amen. Not spread it all over the church, but speak to the person involved, persons involved, and try to, to uh, find change in the church. Oh, lots. Secretsunsealed.org. Secretsunsealed.org. Yeah. Um, we made a list, um, you know, if there's anybody else who would like to go on our mailing list, maybe somebody could donate a couple of sheets of paper, and we can put them up here on the table, and you can just write down your email address. Make sure it's clearly legible. We do not read hieroglyphs. <laughs> so make sure that your uh, email address is very clear, and, uh, you know, you can get our newsletters online, you get updates online, uh, you get uh, all kinds of good information online. Uh, thank you for being here this afternoon. We'll end with a word of prayer, but let's take this one last comment. Yes, everyone who gives me their email address will get all of the lectures that I presented here, all six of them. So make sure you put them down. And uh, I'll be at our booth tonight. 
uh, uh, there are many, many very important books that we, that we have. Please stop by our booth. I don't remember the number of it, but it's Secrets Unsealed. By the way, unsealed is misspelt there. It's with a C instead of an S. That's, that wasn't us. It was the convention center. So, um, but come by. I'll be there. Be glad to talk to you and uh, answer any questions you might have. Let's have a word of prayer. Shall we stand? You've been sitting for a long time. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. What would it be like to live in this world without any standard by which to distinguish between truth and error? It would be a terrible thing to live here. But we thank you, Father, that you have given us the sure word that we can trust that has the answers to life's deepest questions. I just ask, Father, that you will be with us now as we depart this place. Help us, Lord, to live by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. Help us not to live by our feelings or emotions or changing moods or by signs and wonders or by what other people say. Help us, Lord, to go directly to the source and obey you no matter what it must cost. We thank you, Father, for having been with us, for your continued presence in the rest of GYC. I ask, Lord, that you will bless all of the young people as they return to their churches Set the communities on fire with your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for coming. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.